You know, I want a lot for the health sector. I also want a lot, frankly, for women. You know, I do have two daughters who are 19 years old, and um, I want them to come to the playing field and have that playing field be even. I want them to have opportunities that I never have. Um, I want them to be taken seriously um, at times in my life when I was petted on the head and dismissed because I was female. Um, so there are a lot of things I want for my daughters as women who work and women who are part of Thrive families. Um, certainly. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and change makers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Betsy Chapin-Taylor, founder and CEO of Accordant, is one of healthcare philanthropy's most provocative and influential thought leaders. An award-winning author, speaker, and consultant, she is a fellow of the Association for Healthcare Philanthropy, and a recipient of the prestigious Cy Seymour Award. She's also an advocate for the sector who speaks powerfully from both personal and professional experience about the critical importance of healthcare philanthropy. In this conversation, I begin by asking her about something she said at a recent conference, that timidity is never the path to a bolder, better future. Yeah, I think, you know, too often we tend to play it safe. We, um, we don't want to fail. And so we end up doing things that are incremental instead of doing things that are innovative. We tend to do the things that don't get us out of our comfort zone because we don't want to put ourselves there. And so I think we need to be conscious about having courage. Um, bravery is called for. And to have courage, though, you also have to be in partnership with other people that you respect and that you trust, because it's hard to put yourself out there if you don't trust the people that you've surrounded yourself with. And so I do believe timidity is something that holds us back because it's easy to do the um, plan based on last year's plan or to adjust our program based on, you know, little tiny insights that we gained last year. It takes a lot of courage to pull out a blank sheet of paper and really talk about what the future could look like. For a person to do that professionally, they often have to also consider that personally because that timidity comes from a kind of a personal space. Where did you discover that that bravery or that willingness to to get out of that comfort zone? Oh, you know, I think my parents were so marvelous that my parents just kind of pushed us forward sometimes and um, made us not worry about the consequences. You know, I think so often about my mom and my dad were very different. My mom encouraged with nurturing. My father encouraged by just kind of shoving you out there and letting you sink or swim. And um, I responded frankly, to both of them, I also really appreciated that with my parents, it's funny that when I would bring my report card home, they would never say, what did you get? Did you get A's? Did you get B's? What did you get? They said, are you proud of what you did? And so they always kind of placed the pressure back on me to be the architect of what my own expectations were and to encourage me to, to have courage and to jump out there. Um, I also think about even my 
my application for graduate school, um, I ended up going to Columbia University in New York City. It was at the time the number one journalism school in the year. And frankly, the college counselor at my college said, you will never get in. And my father said, then you must apply. And so I got to the essay and the essay said, what is the bravest thing you've ever done? And for some bizarre reason, this is when applications were still on paper. In the middle of the page, there was a little box. I don't know why. And so in that box, I wrote the single word, this, period. And I turned it in. And it was terrifying, but I got in. And so, you know, I used to joke that I must have gotten in on some quota, like they needed a Southern girl or something. But, um, you know, my my father was always the one who was like, OK, you know, a, brink, a little bit of brinksmanship is not a bad thing. So you've referenced being the Southern girl and, and your parents. Where are you from? And tell me about your 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 family and um, and that that origin story of your parents, too. Sure. So I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I always say that's the accent. I've lived in Florida for a decade now, but Chattanooga, Tennessee is home. Um, I grew up in a community called Lookout Mountain and people wouldn't hear that. They envision like, you know, hillbillies or something, but it was a very lovely <laughs> small community. Um, my parents had both grown up there. They had never really gone anywhere else. They had traveled, um, but they never thought to even go anywhere else. And um, I grew up with a big family surrounded by lots and lots of cousins. It was wonderful that my cousins were just younger and just older than I was. So we grew up like a pack of siblings. Um, I have two younger brothers, Ted and John. John's 10 years younger. So we didn't get to grow up so much together, but my family was always close. Um, we did things together. We enjoyed each other. We took care of each other. And um, so my home life was wonderful. And um, I give a lot of credit even to my mom for going into philanthropy. I was planning to go into journalism and my mom actually had helped start the Children's Museum in the community where I lived and it helped start the Community Foundation in the community where I lived. And she said, oh, you would love philanthropy. And I said, oh, mom, I could never raise money. And she said, raising money is all about storytelling. And she said, that's what you love to do. And so I credit my mother with me getting into philanthropy. I never would have done it if she had not pushed and prodded me a little bit. So that colonel was there for philanthropy, but as you said, you were you had a passion for journalism. That's what took you there later. What was the the spark of that? Were you already writing as a young person? I always loved to write. I mean, I, I was the kid who um, stayed up with a flashlight under my bed covers at night so I wouldn't get in trouble for staying up late and I would stay up and I would read and I would write. I always loved the written word. And as I got a little bit older and gained a little bit more confidence, I also loved the spoken word. But um, I was a really shy kid. People even now are like, you're shy. I'm like, yeah, I'm really very shy. I'm very much an introvert. And so it took a little bit of time for me to have the confidence to stand on a stage or to talk in front of a group of people. But I I always love to write. I always have had a love affair with words. 
So uh, a big reader, what kind of books were you reading as a kid? Oh, everything, everything. And, and you know, when I was in kindergarten, I was reading the books that the sixth graders were supposed to read. I, um, It's funny, my first um, desire when I was a child, when people would say, so what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say a librarian. And um, I would go, we had a library in my elementary school, which was an amazing gift. A lot of elementary schools don't have libraries. And um, I would go in and volunteer before and after school and help shelf books and I'd look through books and um, I would go in on my recess and read to the younger kids. I just, I loved books. And so, um, I don't know, I guess it just all, it just all kept building. There's something about reading about the fictional world and then imagining yourself in it. And then there's another about wanting to document it in a sense, which journalism is a little bit of that. Let's cover the story that's, that's here, that's happening. So what drove you towards journalism initially and how did you decide to pursue it even before Columbia? Yeah, I mean, I think journalism in my mind, um, telling stories is a way to unite people. It's a way to educate. It's a way to illuminate. Um, it's a way to um, help people understand. Um, I was in journalism not to persuade people to a point of view, but to help people understand the world around them, to take something and distill it into the essence, to pull together the pieces and show how they connected. That really appealed to me. And but it wasn't a straight line, I guess. Uh, it, some people take that, some don't. But you studied poli sci, I believe, and then uh, went on and, and studied journalism. And then you got an MBA. So what what, what was this journey? Of, uh, where was it taking you? Was it just kind of a, a thirst for figuring all these things out, or? Where <laughs> Wow. So you've seen my resume. Um, I, you know, I mean, I think it was just, it was, it was a natural um, evolution that, you know, I wanted to write. I then found myself though, I went into philanthropy, ended up working in a hospital. I realized working in a hospital, if you wanted to be in a senior leadership position that having a master's degree or an MHA was a ticket to the dance, that um, there were just simply things you needed to do to demonstrate your commitment to the field. And so I went back and got my MBA. I was, golly, I was in my 30s when I went back and got my MBA. I ended up pregnant with twins the last semester of my MBA. And um, so I didn't get to walk with my class, um, but it was just, it was part of the evolution. And, you know, I was always the one I wanted to get a certification or I wanted to, you know, get a class that, you know, I always wanted to step forward. And so that was just part of it. Wow. Um, expecting twins while you're going through school, that must have been an experience. It was a little crazy. I, I think the sad thing was the um, last semester of my MBA, they went on a tour in Europe and went to visit businesses in Berlin and other places. And I didn't get to go because <laughs> I was in the hospital waiting for twins to come. <laughs> So then you were finishing up school and you said then you ended up working in a hospital setting. Was that your first kind of role in this world of philanthropy that you're engaged in now? Yes. My first role in philanthropy was working for um, Memorial Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And how did you find that position and, and what attracted you to it? 
oh, I don't know if I should even tell you that story because it's kind of awful. Um, I was um, I was living in Washington, D.C. I was working for Cable News Network. I was doing exactly what I thought I wanted to do. And my mother called me and said, there's this job in Chattanooga. It's raising money for the hospital. You would be great. And I had no intention to take the job, no intention at all. I was going to live in Washington, D.C. I was going to do my thing. Um, but I agreed. My mom and I were very, very close. I my mom was my best friend. Um, she passed away in 2009 and she said, I really hope you'll come look at this job. And so really, frankly, to placate my mother, I said, OK, I'll interview for the job. Well, I knew nothing about health philanthropy at all, um, but I ended up getting um, Hank Rosso's book and reading it on the plane between Washington, D.C. and Chattanooga. And so, frankly, by the time I got there, I knew more about philanthropy than anyone who was interviewing me for the job. And I um, was supposed to be there for an hour. They told me they were going to make the decision in a couple of weeks. I ended up staying all day. I loved them. I loved their passion. I loved their purpose. I loved their mission. I loved their culture. I loved them. And I think they loved me too, because at the end of the day, they offered me the job and I took it and I got home and my mother said, where have you been? Because she thought I was going to be back hours earlier. And I said, I've been at Memorial and I took the job. So um, that moved me over into philanthropy and I have never looked back. I, I loved it. And um, it was a wonderful choice, even if a wonderful choice made for, frankly, all the reasons initially. But what, what was it so what was so exciting about it? Because your your vision, you were already achieving it. That CNN thing was something that <laughs> Uh, with a dream job, I'm sure, for many people. Um, I think there's a moment that you realize that if you're going to go far in journalism, it is going to involve um, standing on the side of the road in the rain, being hit by water from a passing bus. Um, you know, I had um, I was working in a place where people threw telephones at each other. Um, you know, I was it, it was a crazy place. And I think there was part of me that I thought, wow, I can see myself living a sane existence here and still getting to work with people until stories. And so um, I think ultimately my my soul won over my um, ambition <laughs> for being a journalist. So I can I can see that what I don't see is that that additional potential missing piece, which is having a, a heart for health care, which you clearly do. And that's been a big part of your life in lots of ways. But when you first went there, did you have like a sense, you were already developing a sense of philanthropy from your mother, from her experience in the museum, from the book you just read, from the people that you just met. But then there's dealing with patients. That's different, you know, disease or health or any kind of care. Did you have a sense about that or? I did, you know, and I think that even comes from my dad, that um, my dad would always say um, there are two things that no one else can ever take away from you, and it's your education and your health. And um, those same two things are the, the ticket to your best life. And so I'd always believe like education was fundamentally important and um, your health was critically important because so many things were going to be elusive to you if you lost your health. And so I walked into the 
role at Memorial, believing that um, safeguarding the health and well-being of others was noble work. It was beautiful. It was purpose-filled, and it could really touch and change people's lives. And so, you know, even from the very beginning, it was just aligned with my values and what I believed in. Um, you know, I look back now, and I was, you know, I was so young. I was 25 when I took that job, and um, I'd never had a real health incident in my life. I'd had some problems when I was a kid. I had been sick, um, but I really didn't understand health and what that meant. And then, um, you know, the world decided to educate me a bit. And so um, it ended up that I... In 2005, I had a rare form of twins called mono-mono twins. Um, they, 50% of them die of cord death. Um, I was told that I probably shouldn't continue the pregnancy because it was so risky. And I continued the pregnancy and I now have two, you know, crazy 19 year old daughters. Um, my mom ended up dying of an aneurysm in 2009. My father died of colon cancer in 2011. I got breast cancer in 2017. My husband got lung cancer in 2019. And my brother was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor in 2022. And um, so, you know, life just kept doling out to me lessons on the importance of healthcare, the burdens that frankly people carry that are invisible, that everybody in a hospital is, is fighting or rallying for someone else. And, um, you know, I just kept being affirmed and edified in the importance of this work as I saw things happen around me. And um, so, you know, no looking back, no regrets i i love working in healthcare there i see the how you've been able to take all you've experienced personally and then that must be fuel for the fire of doing this work in addition but you have to sustain that energy too what has enabled you to build and to sustain that resilience as you're doing that because that's a lot of personal pressure and uh, you're not alone in that. There are a lot of other people that I know you've run into that are experiencing that too, including within the healthcare systems themselves. You've talked about it with physicians and the mm -hmm. burdens they carry. Um, what's enabled you to sustain that strength? You know, I think um, it, it starts for me with just purpose, um, you know, believing that it's worthwhile work, it's worth getting up for. Um, I'd also say personally sustaining me, um, I've been blessed by family and friends and um, just being in community with others, having people that I, I laugh with and that I can, you know, share the worst and the best with. Um, it's just being in relationship with other humans, which is funny, you know, this it's already told you I'm an introvert. I, I like a small, select and curated group of friends. I don't do well with with big groups. Um, but, you know, having those relationships around me, um, that's what sustains me and pushes me forward. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the, the burden more broadly, the burden you were talking about a minute ago, maybe how it manifests itself, not just for you, but for the field, because I, I know you, I've heard you talk about it in the context of physician burnout, but yeah. I mean, it's just one manifestation of something that's broader. When you yeah. think about the burden of this, what do you think of? Hmm. So I'm not quite sure where you're going, but I'll, you know, I think, um, you know, healthcare 
you it's a sacred trust that you're holding someone's body and their hope in your hands in some part. And um, there's a lot of pressure that goes with that. So when we look at physicians and clinicians, you know, certainly 50 percent of physicians say they are emotionally exhausted, um, that they've lost their resilience. They've lost their joy in work. Some of them are seeking to leave the profession and it's just overwhelming. And certainly all of that was exacerbated by COVID. Um, But I think, you know, just in general life life is beautiful but life is not easy um, you know i think all of us have um, trials that we face whether it's in our family or our profession or our health or other things i think all of us have to figure out where we're going to find um, the joy and the gratitude and the just resolve to pick up and move forward every day and so you know whatever you're facing i think you've got to make a choice um you know it's funny i, I probably drive people crazy and then i think Um, It is a choice. Um, You choose how you're going to respond to things. And um, so people even, you know, very lovingly kind of gave me a hard time that 2023 was not my best year. It was not a great year for me that um, back, you know, I I mentioned Ted, my brother was diagnosed with a brain tumor and um, I was going in for my five-year follow-up on my own oncology treatment at the end of 2022. And I just happened to casually mention in passing to my oncologist that Ted had been diagnosed with a glioblastoma. And she looked at me, she goes, wait, she said, have you had genetic testing? And I said, no, I said, I didn't qualify for it. I was too old by a month the last time. So they didn't let me have it. And she said, remind me, she said, your father died of colon cancer. And I said, yes. She said, how old was he? How old is your brother? And she said, you need to go for genetic testing. So I ended up going for genetic testing in December of 2022. And they told me they had um, something that made BRCA, the breast cancer gene, look friendly. Um, I have a genetic mutation called a TP53 variation. And the genetic counselor cried with me and said, she's never had to give someone that news before. She said, it's the worst one you can get. Well, fantastic. You know, of course, like that's what I end up with. And, um, and so, you know, people were like, you know, are you like, how many times have you cried? Like, do you go home and do you just scream? Do you like, what, like, what are you doing about this? And I told my genetic counselor, I said, well, actually, like, I haven't, I haven't cried. Um, I haven't screamed. I, um, I'm just moving forward. And she, and so many people said to me, like, this is a death sentence. And I said, you know, no, this is, this is not a death sentence. This is a life sentence. It means there are things that I have to pay attention to. And it means that there are things I have to do. It means I have a whole cadre of doctors that I've gotten to know. Um, I had to do some horrible things last year, like a three and a half hour MRI, which is terrible for a claustrophobic person, which I am. Um, I ended up having a double mastectomy last year. Um, it was pro prophylactic. Ironically, they ended up finding cancer. Um, It was just a brand new little DCIS um, ductal um, carcinoma in situ. So it's like stage zero cancer, but they found it. Um, And, you know, I think through all of that, 
you know, what I've, what I've hung on to is, you know, what a beautiful day it is. Um, what incredible work we would get to do. Um, what incredible people I know, what great books I get to read. Um, you know, I'm focused on like moving forward and, um, being positive because, um, that's a choice. You could decide to like wallow in the difficulty of it. Um, and that's what some people choose to do, but that's not what I chose. And, and I would say even for my brother, my brother's still alive. He shouldn't be, he's defied all of the odds at this point. Ted is the most like joyful, positive human being. And that's a choice too. And so I think, um, you know, we can't always decide the cards were dealt. We can decide how we respond to them. Yeah. Choices powerful if we recognize we have it. And that's, that's something that we have the power to do, I suppose. Absolutely. Our attitude is under our own control. And, you know, I'm amazed when I run into people who are angry, who are bitter, when they have so much to be thankful for. And, um, you know, I think, golly, we all just need to lean into things like um, kindness and gratitude and joy rather than, you know, uncovering the things that could make us mad or could make us sad. Because, um, you know, why would we want to wallow in that when we could make a different choice? Well, even if we weren't talking about really catastrophic, but um, survivable with joy, I suppose, uh, health challenges even in the field where you have spent so much time, so much energy trying to rouse people to, to take, you know, take control, live, to, live the moment and um, move beyond timidity to really pursue strategy in healthcare. That in all those settings, we also see sometimes people kind of um, hold back a little bit. And yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Where, where does that come from? It, it may not be a personal challenge in the same way that a health challenge is, but but sometimes people will just not want to be bold in yeah. terms of of real community need. Why is that? I I think that timidity sometimes is a byproduct of success. Um, the further you go up the ladder, um, the more risk there is of doing something stupid or failing. And so it behooves you in some part to play it safe and to protect yourself, to color within the lines, to do what is expected of you. Um, however, that is also the exact same recipe that leaves you behind, because if you're not agile, if you fail to innovate, if you say fail to see change happening around you, and you stand there, you become a person on the sidelines instead of a person who is actively influencing what's going to happen next. And so, you know, I'm always for the, um, you know, fail, <laughs> you know, go be bold. And I, and I don't like the whole idea of like, fail fast, you know, let's not fail fast. Let's just um, have the courage to accept the consequences if we if we do fail and go try new things, because um, the thing we try might be the the key that unlocks the, the next round of the game or um, creates the magic that we were looking for. And so um, I find, frankly, um, being bold, invigorating and exciting um, because it's the only way we're going to uncover new opportunities is if we put ourselves out there into new situations and try new things. What are some of the new situations that healthcare needs to pursue in order to be successful beyond this margin, this tiny margin that they have for, for operating hospitals and healthcare? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, first of all, um, healthcare's concept of itself is is dead. Um, you know, we have built an entire industry on acute care hospitals meant to reactively treat illness and injury. Um, it is the old joke about somebody's throwing babies in the water upstream and we're pulling them out downstream. Why is nobody going up and stopping people from throwing babies in the river? Um, you know, we're now um, we have a new level of consciousness in healthcare that really we should be focusing on access and equity and well-being, things like prevention. Um, the problem with some of that is there's not an attendant revenue stream to go with it. And so it's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. And yet a lot of hospitals can't afford to do it because it's not how the incentives are aligned. It's not how they get paid. And so we've got to figure out how to transition to that new world of healthcare that takes us outside the four walls of the hospital and really makes us um, partners and owners in driving a new level of health status in our communities. Um, but with that, you know, part of the intersection with my work that's really exciting to me is philanthropy can be an answer. Um, there are a lot of people in communities who are visionary, who understand the bigger picture, who understand what the constraints are. And if we can step forward with philanthropic money to help fund these right programs, um, then, you know, the hope is that we will gain enough traction that ultimately they'll either be downstream savings that help fund it in the future um, or that just demonstrate the need to invest on the on the front end. And so, you know, I think that's ex an exciting thing for healthcare right now. Healthcare is still just facing incredibly difficult margins. Um, last year, Kaufman Hall said the median operating margin was like 1.8%. That was better than last year where operating margins were negative, but hospitals don't have the ability to pursue excellence on a 1.8% operating margin. Um, it, it costs them about 5% just to stand still to maintain their physical plants, all the other infrastructure that is there. And so if we're going to really innovate, if we're going to transform healthcare, if we're going to seek sources of competitive advantage, we've got to find other revenue streams. And philanthropy is a valuable revenue stream if we would just cultivate it appropriately and utilize it appropriately. So what does appropriately look like if you were reinventing healthcare across the country? And I know it's different from place to place. It's very different in a rural area from the way it is in a city. And there are a lot of other factors, socioeconomic factors and others. Um, but what would that look like? Where, where, what role should philanthropy play exactly in the economy of healthcare? And what investment do we need to make in order for that to be possible? Sure. So, you know, first of all, philanthropy is not mad money. Um, it is not extra. It is not for backfilling budget. It's not for doing like, you know, fun and interesting and decorative things that we wouldn't do otherwise. Um, I believe philanthropy should always be going to fund things that we've already identified in our strategic plan as being critically important for the organization. Because when we don't have money to fund the important things, why in the world do we go out and create things that philanthropy can fund? It's just nonsensical to me and it's contrary to I believe what donors would want us to do with their money. So um, it shouldn't be extras. It shouldn't be nice to have. It should always be going to strategy. And with that, honestly, we have um, healthcare C-suite executives who do not perceive that, who need to understand that philanthropy should be treated with the same level of diligence as any other revenue source in the organization. Um, we wouldn't say, oh, we had a great year from operations. Since we have extra money, we'll just blow 
blow it on this. Um, we wouldn't say, wow, investment income, we got in more this year than we thought. So we'll just go blow the extra on that. We would say, wow, this is a really valuable source of revenue. We need to ensure that it's deployed to its highest and best use. We should have the same philosophy when it comes to our dollars from philanthropy to make sure that we're really using them to affect the change that would really make a difference in our communities. A lot of times philanthropy, when it's successful, is at the top end, whether or not it's decorative. I love that word or 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 uh, directly related to strategy. It, it tends to be large and tends to be focused. So whether the need is great or arguable, uh, it, it does it does tend to be just in certain pockets when, in fact, the needs are broad. And I, I, so is there a way for philanthropy the way you envision it? Uh, to take care of the broader costs of m making healthcare available to more people at a higher level? You know, I think it again comes down to each of us in communities need to look at what change needs to occur right there where we are. And um, there's a good blueprint in my mind that every not-for-profit healthcare system in the United States has to create a community health needs assessment every three years to look at what the unique challenges are within their community. We need to start aligning resources with our CHNA. We are required to fill them out to maintain our charitable tax status. However, many organizations frankly do a terrible job actually implementing against those plans. And the most common reason is because they didn't have money. And so to be able to look at our CHNA and other things that are already within our hands and say, you know, we are going to deploy philanthropy to ensure we are addressing the most pressing needs of our community. It would be a game changer. So is that a catch-22 or is that a choice? Like the other choices that we've talked about, because if there's not enough money to pursue the strategy that they've hopefully designed, how do, you, how do they embark on it? What, what can they do? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it is in some part about choice. You know, let's say in your CHNA, you've got five different priorities that need to be advanced. Well, you know, rather than spreading a smattering of money across five, maybe you lean in hard around one and you actually make a difference in that one space. And I think um, constraints are going to continue to be part of our reality. Um, but even within those constraints, we have the ability to affect change um, and to create success. And so we've just got to be very thoughtful about how we align our resources with our opportunities. The, this may get a little bit into the political realm, although I don't mean it as a political. But don't realm. go there. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask, is the role of government insufficient? Is, is, uh, do we need more money to come from the tax base as well as from philanthropy uh, in order to just make it possible to kind of jumpstart this car so that then uh, more can be done through the, through the resources and generosity of the community? Yeah. Oh, so, you know, that gets just so political so fast that there are people who um, believe that, you know, philanthropists want to drive their own agenda rather than um, advancing society's agenda. I don't believe in that. Um, there are people who think the role of government should be X and others who think the role of government should be Y. I think, you know, no matter how we're going to pursue it, I think we need to look at how are we going to do a better job? We're deploying resources from a variety of sources 
resources to lift up the social fabric of our communities. Um, when we have people who do not have access to very basic health care and very basic things like um, safe and stable housing, um, you know, adequate nutrition, um, those are societal problems that through whatever resource we garner, we need to make sure that we are addressing them to start to lift up humanity. Right. The social determinants of, of, of healthcare, I guess, is one of the ways that I've heard people talk about it. And it, that sounds like the the um, breaking down those walls that you've talked about in front of AHP audiences, where the hospital isn't just a building that where they serve people who come in and can afford it, um, but also, you know, tries, finds ways to serve a broader community of people who may not know about or be able to access that health care. So uh, broadening equity. Um, but uh, how does that how does that happen? How uh, how can how can uh, can a hospital remake itself in the mode of um, being a, a community actor rather than a service provider? Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many studies, Jay, that show that zip code is destiny. Um, there could be people who live neighborhoods apart that have. 10 years difference in life expectancy. And it's based on their access to food and to education and air quality and a variety of other things. And I think sometimes we need to go out to people instead of waiting for people to come to us. Um, if we're going to really work on access, it's not necessarily about throwing up a new clinic. Sometimes it's about um, getting in a car and driving to where people live or sleep or play or go to school um, to figure out how we get to them instead of waiting for them to figure out how to get to us. And um, every community, frankly, you could probably name um, the places in your community where you have um, extreme poverty, um, where you have um, scarce resources. Um, we know where those places are. We know where those people reside. Why are we waiting for them to figure out how to get to us? We need to figure out how to get to them. So looking forward, as you think about this and through the practice that accordant and all the work that you do, you're, 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 you have this kind of ferocity of joy as you pursue <laughs> I love. I, I'm just wondering, as you look forward and you have your own strategy in mind, I'm sure, not just the business, but probably for you and for the sector, what are you imagining? What does this look like for you 10 years, 20 years out for, for, your, for your twins? Yeah. What, what do you imagine for them? You know, I think, um, <laughs> you know, I want a lot for the health sector, for sure. Um, I also want a lot, frankly, for women. You know, I do have two daughters who are 19 years old, and um, I want them to come to the playing field and have that playing field be even. I want them to have opportunities that I never have. Um, I want them to be taken seriously um, at times in my life when I was petted on the head and dismissed because I was female. Um, so there are a lot of things I want for my daughters as women who work and who, women who are part of thriving families, um, certainly for the business. Um, I hope Accordant will continue to make an impact. Um, we believe deeply in the power of philanthropy and partnership to change the landscape and to lift people up, to uh, make health and well-being something that is accessible to everyone. Um, I believe that we've got the ability to do that by focusing on um, more vibrant philanthropy, better governance, creating partnerships. Um, all those things in my mind are addressed 
addressing root causes of what is holding us back from achieving the good that we have in mind right now. And so, you know, I just hope that Accordant will continue to be part of the solution there. Um, as far as healthcare, you know, I think um, there's just so much opportunity there and we've got to figure out, um, and it's very complex, how to get beyond the politics, get beyond some of the constraints and figure out how to just dig in and do some of the things that need to be done because they're the right thing to do. And um, it is a very complex sector with a lot of moving parts, but with a lot of incredibly smart, passionate, well-intentioned people that if we could just find a way to cut them loose and not hold them back anymore, um, I know that the people who are around the tables in America's hospitals right now um, have the intention to do right and to care for everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. Betsy, just one last question. You talked about your parents and they sound like pretty extraordinary people. They really they were pretty extraordinary people. Yeah, they they pumped you up. They um, and uh, they're both gone now. Is that right? So um, they grew up in that community where you're from and that was their town. You have uh, then looked at the whole world. I mean, that's what you're doing now. You, you speak on different stages and you speak to a broad audience um, nationally and beyond. And I'm wondering uh, what they would say about some of the work you're doing. Oh, gosh, I talked a lot about personal stuff that I'm not planning to talk about today. You know, I think um, my parents were very purpose-driven, mission-driven people. So first, they would be happy that I'm happy. And second, they would be happy that I'm trying to make a difference in the world. Um, you know, I think about my parents sometime and I hope that they would be proud of of the person I became and proud of the change that I've tried to affect. Um, but I also know that your yardstick was always, are you proud of what you did? They never pushed me for grades. They never pushed me for results. They never pushed me into a career. Um, they always said like, are you proud of what you did? Are you doing what you need to do? And, and I think I am. Well, that's it for this episode of the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast. Thanks very much to our sponsor, DonorSearch, the world leader in fundraising intelligence, and of course, our producer, Jack Frost. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the DonorSearch YouTube channel, or wherever you like to listen. And consider giving us a like and a positive review so others can find us too. Check out our live webinars and webcasts on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and come back next Friday for our next interview with another leader in the world of social good. Until then, this is Jay Frost. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.